everyone. Welcome to Making It, our weekly podcast on building a great business right here in Egypt. Brought to you by Enterprise. This season is sponsored by CIB, the partner of choice for CEOs and leaders of businesses at all stages of their growth stories. And by the United States Agency for International Development, which has a 40-year history of inspiring Egyptian success in partnership with the government and the people of Egypt. USAID promotes an environment where all groups in Egyptian society can lead healthy and productive lives. In the last week, you've probably checked your emails on your smartphone, perhaps looked something up in your browser, and maybe even found time to watch a movie or a show. And if you did any of the above, you've probably been impacted by tech developed or influenced by one of today's guests. From Apple and Netscape to Palm and Obopay, Nancy Zaid and Hisham Shaoi, who also goes by Sam, worked on the tech that brought you web browsers, the original blueprint for peer-to-peer payment, mobile operating systems, and even the Emmy award-winning video editing software, Final Cut Pro. During Sam's tenure at Visa, the standard procedure to secure and verify personal data for transactions, whether it's in a phone, in bank cards, or in the point-of-sale devices that accept them, was to use a hardware component. Seeing software as the natural progression to replace these costly chips and machines, he was met with resistance from an industry that deemed it impossible, because software simply couldn't achieve the same level of security. But when he presented this issue to Nancy, she took it as an engineering challenge, and in 2014, MagicCube was born. Unlike hardware systems, Software-based security is easy to scale, can be remotely managed, and adapts easily to new threats. The technology has major applications that extend to any device that connects to the internet, with particularly high potential in industry, financial services, medical devices, and autonomous vehicles. And today, as Egypt drives towards financial inclusion, the importance of payment security should not be underestimated. With that being said, Magic Cube is currently focused on the $48 billion point-of-sale market through their new platform, iAccept attracting investments from Sony, Visa, and CIB's venture capital arm C-Ventures along the way. Sam and Nancy take us back to when they first met in Egypt and how their first business evolved into a marriage and a daughter. They tell us how they soon found themselves working at companies that arguably changed the world and share with us their favorite stories on meeting Steve Jobs. Here's Nancy and Sam speaking to Patrick, Enterprise's editor-in-chief and co-host of Making It. Nancy and Sam, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having us. It's our pleasure. All right. I think for the two of you, we have to ask Mac or PC? (laughs) Mac. Hands down. (laughs) Hands down. Mac. Both of you Mac, huh? Nancy and I, when we were in Cairo, we started uh, with others. The very first Macintosh user group in the Middle East, probably, or in the region even. No way. Yeah. And that was called Apple Pie. and, And it became a company later. But it started as a hobby where I personally fell in love with the first Macintosh that I've ever seen because my career was in architecture. I was a a building architect, not a software architect. And uh, when I was trying to learn, and actually at some point I was teaching Auto Lisp and AutoCAD to other architects, the Macintosh came out and the simplicity was shocking in comparison. And the devices were expensive, the printers were expensive. And not everybody had everything, so I I decided to share. And that sharing turned out to become a user group. This user group attracted a lot of users. Then the users started asking us to do software for them. Then the whole company was born. So definitely Mac, from before it was fashionable. That's awesome. What was your first Mac? 
I think it was the Macintosh Plus or the one before that. Yeah. The Plus. Okay. The the Fat Mac. Was it the Fat Mac that was out before the Plus? No. That was the typical original Macintosh. The original Mac, Mac yeah. 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 What about you, Nancy? Well, in our lab, in computer science lab in American University, it's all PCs. You know, you could see that in order to make that PC usable, there a lot of effort has to go in in order to start making it usable. Then I interned in the summer in a company in Egypt, uh, and that's where I ran into the first Mac. And I just stood there. It was the Mac, the SE30. That is the best Mac ever made. That's true. <laughs> I looked at the SE30 and I realized that there's another world and that normal people, not engineers, not computer science students, should be able to use that. And I saw something that allowed it. And I got hooked since then. That's awesome. How did you guys meet? So Nancy was an early joiner of that company and I consider her a co-founder. And when Nancy came in, the ambitions that I had in designing a graphics package, because I'm an architect, kind of fell short uh, when my capabilities on coding kind of proved to be shallow. I thought I was good, but didn't really go beyond drawing a couple of rectangles and flipping them and stuff like that. So when Nancy came on board, what we had was a prototype of a graphics application. That was when Adobe was a young company. And Adobe uh, had a good product. There was a couple of other products, Canvas and a bunch of other names that nobody probably remembers. And I took our prototype, flew to Paris, where Apple Europe is, met with who now is a dear friend of both of us, Hisham Abulata, who created the Apple Arabic operating system before there was any Arabic operating system ever. Till today, if you take a Mac SE that you mentioned that, that was sold in the Arab world, if you switch it on, it comes up with a dialogue box that says Mac Arabic Operating System by Mark Davis and Hisham Abulat. In Egypt, he's not a known entity to us and to Apple. He was a celebrity because his efforts is what allowed Apple to become international quickly, especially in desktop publishing, where Arabic, Hebrew, Hindi, double by Chinese, Thai, uh, bi-directional, that was all Hisham Abulata's work out of uh, Paris. So I, I traveled to Hisham and I showed him the prototype we have. I didn't know him then. And I was easily dismissed. The dismissal was simple. We have a ton of these products. Uh, why would I need this? So I went back uh, with the little money I have. And, <laughs> and Nancy said something I will never forget. She said, maybe I can make it work in multiple languages. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, Adobe supports only English. And they seem to have hard-coded everything, so it doesn't work in Arabic or any other language. Maybe I can make it work in other languages. That's going to be difficult. And Nancy says something that I till today, it's, it's the genesis of everything. Well, well, look, I read the Inside Macintosh. I don't know how anybody would read that, but anyway. Uh, <laughs> it, and in it, it says, if we adhere to certain design principles, actually the engine or the toolbox of Apple would handle the language. Oh, my God. And in a short order... We had another prototype that ran in any language, Arabic, Hindi, Hebrew, whatever. You throw at any language that worked. And we used that to show some samples of graphics, some uh, text on a curve, all the, all the tricks you can do for desktop publishing that was not available, not available in Arabic. My next flight to Paris ended up with an immediate signed contract by Apple, which funded our first company, and by Hisham Abulata, who 
in a couple of pages said, if you can deliver this in these languages at this level of quality, we're pre-buying some of it. We're giving you money. We're giving you Macintoshes. We're giving you laser printers. Wow. To me, I didn't understand that we're being funded, but that was an investment. And they pre-bought the copies. And we actually, for several years, if you would buy a Mac in the Middle East or in other surrounding countries in Eastern Europe, bundled with it was a product called Artbeat. And that was you guys. That was us. Okay, so you guys meet on the job. You solve this really cool technical problem. You hit the big time with Apple. At what point in time does this become a romance and you guys get married and have Sarah? You know, when you work with someone long enough and you see the ups and downs and you see the nice part and you see the not so nice part, uh, and then you really <laughs> and then you you really know the person. And when you know the person and and you align on the ambitions and the energy and the kind heart there and the sense of humor, because in in technology, anywhere, but especially in Egypt, you got to maintain a sense of humor to get things going. So it just, you know, we, we clicked and we thought it'd be nice to uh, push this together officially. Wow. And that was 19 what? Uh, 1991. I wished I had left that for Sam because he's usually really bad with names and then I have something to uh, you mean this? <laughs> give him a hard time. <laughs> Sometime in the 90s. <laughs> Sometime. Yeah. <laughs> So you guys, how do you wind up at Apple itself? So that's, uh, Nancy will continue, but I'll give you the start. We get a call and I can't remember if it was Hisham or somebody that reported to him asking me if they can offer a job to the smart one. Literally, that was, his, that was his. <laughs> And I said, that's not me, is it? They said, no, your wife, to Nancy. And I said, are you offering Nancy a job at Apple? They said, yeah. I said, whereabouts? In France? They said, no, in Cupertino. And I said, she accepts. She said, you cannot accept on her behalf. I said, you asked me. You, you just asked me. Why don't you ask her? I know she will accept. So the rest of the conversation happened with Nancy. She interviewed. And we were yanked out of Doi, where we lived, into Cupertino. In a few weeks, Apple just moved us. And Nancy had a, a job at Apple in Infinite Loop 1 uh, in Cupertino. And I started looking for a job. That's a huge shift in a matter of weeks. Nancy, I'm a fanboy. Forgive me, but I've got to ask, what was it like working at Apple? Oh, my. It's the mothership. It's like being transferred to where things happen. So when I was in Egypt, in Cairo, the access to information was such a hurdle. I have to tell you, I used to reverse engineer uh, some of the code, not for malicious reasons, but because of lack of access to information, lack of access to documentation. At that time, mind you, now every, you know, the playing field has been leveled with the presence of the internet. But at that time, you definitely were guaranteed to be a year or two behind anybody else. So coming to Apple, I was used to my ways of investigating and, 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 and I'm taking a little longer than uh, usual until somebody said, oh, just call, you know, XYZ. And I call XYZ on a phone on my desk. And he goes, no, 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 you need to do it that way. Uh, and I go, all right, I did it. But then I ran into a problem. He goes, hey, how about we have lunch? I'll show you. Or come by, I'll show you. And I would, helping the newcomer and making sure they learn what they learned. Passing of learning is something that we can do better at Egypt. That's a really good point. 
I can tell you a similar story when I joined Netscape when they were 20 people. The whole idea of here, let me teach you what I know is absolutely amazing. I want to ask each of you, um, Nishant, what did you learn at Netscape? And Nancy, what did you learn at Apple? Like, What was the number one lesson that you learned, each of you independently, at these two transformative companies that have completely reshaped the world that we live in today that you've taken with you to Magic Cube? The biggest revelation to me that the word, this is a stupid idea, is not an insult. It's not. It's a stupid idea. Hmm. Smart people will have stupid ideas, and somebody needs to say, well, that's stupid. And the hierarchy doesn't matter. So at Netscape, uh, when I joined, and I was in my 30s, I was thought of as part of the adult supervision. That tells you that the rest of the... <laughs> in 30s. Yeah, and that, that the rest of the team, Mark Andreessen and everybody, were fresh out of college. Everybody came in with an experimental idea that they did in a campus lab. And the environment was so democratic that I, as an Egyptian, initially was scared to engage in communication because I couldn't know, uh, how do you get fired here? I mean, it, the CEO is saying something <laughs> and a college kid saying, this is stupid. And I'm like, I'm not going to participate in this because I don't really want to get killed in the middle because I don't understand what's going on. <laughs> and before there was a Twitter, the email threads inside Netscape were a really public forum of dispute and of debating ideas. That to me was, wow, this is a real democracy. I mean, still the boss would rule, right? But until he rules or she mm -hmm. rules, a debate is open and a bad idea is called on the spot as a bad idea. There's no fear of authority. It doesn't exist. I'll tell you from an engineering perspective, what I learned and took with me is that just because the world says it is so, it doesn't mean it's the only way. There's got to be another way. So questioning the norms is something that needs to be done periodically, not to just disrupt, but to improve. Okay? So this is what I hope I took with me. Uh, and then the other thing hmm. is uh, it is impossible. There is no such thing as it is impossible. If it is code and if it is software, it is possible maybe not as good as you want it to be at the beginning, but it will happen and it will get better. And you just have to keep at it. Last thing I promise is that there is no such thing as a perfect idea from the inception. The more brains you throw at it, uh, the better it becomes. And the more you entertain, you know, but that's stupid. Well, let's take a look at it a little deeper. How do you guys build that into a company? So where it comes to engineering, the part about work hard and smart, but for a vision, for a direction. Not You don't work late unnecessarily. You work late if it is a must. Then when you say, how do you build, how do you instill that culture? Uh, you act it. Uh, you don't just preach it, you act it. And then, you know, as you pick the team members, you put that as part of the evaluation of the engineer. The engineer is not just a group of skill sets. Uh, the engineer is a human skill set. Uh, engineering skill set, his or her definition of a team. What does that look like? Does it fit? And then you decide on that's a good combo for this candidate versus the other. And then the last part, which is equally important and the most unpleasant, you need to acknowledge that there will be people that need to go away because culturally they have proven that they are either toxic or they just don't fit. Okay. So we're going to circle back at the end of our discussion. I have a couple 
Very quick follow-up questions for each of you about Netscape and Apple. I can't help myself, but we need to talk about Magic Cube. That's why you guys are on the show. So explain to me like a dummy, what does Magic Cube do? So I'll do that because Nancy's explanation by definition is going to be more intelligent. So let me try the <laughs> let me try my explanation. So security comes in two types. Uh, there's what I call deterministic security and analytical security. Analytical security is based on analytics, AI, cloud-based stuff, which I can say 85% this is Patrick. That's 85%. And that's how e-commerce works okay. and a lot, of, a lot of stuff works. There are a lot of use cases where it's not enough to say this is 85%. I need to know 100% this is Patrick. And to do that, the security information needs to be in a safe, a physical safe. Before Magic Cube was, came to light, a physical safe is required. You on your person have multiple of these safes. One of them is the SIM card in your phone. That's a physical safe. It's made of metal. It has secrets in it that are known to your carrier that you uh, use the, the phone from. It also exists in your credit card or debit card. It is the same format. It also exists inside the phone you use. If it's an iPhone, it's, I think, called the secure enclave or uh, secure element, and it's mm -hmm. part of the chipset. It is a box made of metal where information is hidden from the rest of the system, which can be contaminated by attackers and viruses and, and listeners and, and interception and all that. So why do we need to invent a new version? Because a SIM card is made of metal. I cannot put it inside an application. Mm -hmm. I cannot download it over the air. So what Nancy and her team created was basically a virtual SIM card that can be downloaded, integrated in an SDK, updated over the air, upgraded without needing to distribute it physically. Then we can talk about use cases. So this is what Netflix did to the DVD. This is what email did to the fax machine, but in security, which was deemed more difficult. So walk me through how this works. So in the case of Apple Pay, you don't have a physical card. How does it do it? Correct. Because Apple has access to the hardware chip inside the phone. So the information that was on the chip in the card moved from hardware mm -hmm. to hardware inside the Apple device. In our case, we can put it in a software piece that doesn't require access to Apple's hardware. So I can mimic the card in pure virtualization with the same level of security as Apple, not okay. with a, a lower medium. But before we leave that case, the device that read the card chip, which is called a payment terminal, guess what is that? That's a hardware secure element of a bigger and more complex size. Absolutely. That's what we're replacing. And that's what you're replacing in just one use case. I mean, th you're talking about a solution that has industrial applications, that has applications in medicine. What are the use cases for Magic Cube? So anything that requires a security chip, anything that requires a SIM card, we can make it digital at the same level of security, not at the lower level. But before we leave the big example, please, the commercial model we have and the initial product that's gaining a success working with the CIB and others, uh, I should say C Ventures and others, is the replacement of the point of sale system. And why this is important globally and especially for Egypt is because the world has a serious problem. The world has north of 5 billion credit and debit cards, billion with a B. These credit cards come in 
in the plastic form and also in the wallet form. It doesn't matter. <laughs> They're still cards. Guess how many point of sale devices that can read such a card are in existence globally? Low millions? Six million. Wow. 60 million. I'm sorry. Six billion versus 60, 60 million. million. That's crazy. So how can the world get away from cash? How economies can improve? How can micro merchants survive? How can poor people accept cards? How can expensive equipment be moved out of the game as an obstacle? It is by moving this device out of existence, which is a tall task, not just from a security perspective like we're doing, mm -hmm. but from adoption, certification, compliance, and willingness of the world to move to a better solution. So before we go into other use cases, this one in itself is not a minor use case. It's a major use case. Just to give you an example, forget the number of transactions and how much money merchants are making or Visa is making or the bank is making. How much equipment that is single purpose can only read a card, cannot do anything else, cannot play music, cannot take pictures, just can read a card. How much money does the world economy endures every year just in the price of metal? equipment, $48 billion, $48 billion. That's crazy. So that number, when I put it in a deck and I present it to an investor, I usually double check because it looks like I have too many zeros, but it is the right number. <laughs> it is, seriously, it is $48 billion. So let's focus on this use case because in a country like Egypt, where I don't know the official number of devices, but the number of devices is very small. If I end up allowing every plumber every gardener, every delivery person, download an app and you're a merchant for a day, a week, a month. How impactful is this? No, it's a game changer for financial inclusion. Exactly. It's a game changer to bring the informal economy into the formal economy. Making Data is brought to you in association with USAID. For 40 years, the American people through USAID have invested over $30 billion to inspire Egyptian success in partnership with the government and the people of Egypt. USAID promotes an environment where all groups in Egyptian society can lead healthy and productive lives. Where did the idea come from? It's 2014, Magic Cube leaps into existence, but how, where, why, what was the idea? That's an easy one. That's me at Visa after doing another payment startup called Obopay, which is really what you guys now call Venmo. <laughs> but anyway, uh, really? by inheritance, not by direct relationship. So by the time I was at Visa, I was trying to solve many problems that Magic Cube now is, is trying to solve. And I was told it's impossible because of the absence of software security that can fulfill what hardware does. And I kept hearing impossible. Keep in mind, we're still in Silicon Valley, and now I'm hearing impossible. I, I'm not used to hearing impossible anymore. So why is this impossible? Well, software cannot be as, as secure as hardware. So frustrated after work, sitting in front of the TV at home, Nancy, my wife, doing another project for a healthcare entity. And Nancy says, what's going on? I said, everybody keeps saying this is impossible. Nancy picks a pencil or a pen and paper, and she scrambles something on it saying, no, no, no. Maybe we can do it this way. And I'm like, what do you mean? You mean you know how to do this? She said, no, not exactly. But I think I might be able to. That was to me the first time in 20 some years. It sounded to me exactly like what she did when we were at Pi, when she said, I can make this program work in multiple languages. It was the same, would you want to work with me again 
That, by the way, there was not an immediate yes. That took some convincing, by the way. So. <laughs> I was going to say, Nancy, how easy was that decision to make? <laughs> well, it rekindled way back, way back at the beginning, that passion of here is a common goal. Here is a, not a struggle, but here is an ambition. Here's a challenge. So what if both of us actually get it done to tell others here? Take a look. Nancy and I were already successful when we started Magic Cube multiple times over. And others in our place could have been uh, retiring. What we wanted to do is what we wanted to do in the first place. We were partners before we actually were husband and wife. And this presented an unmanufactured opportunity. When you find a business problem in your domain, and your life partner, which was your business partner before that, says, I found the technology solution for it. That does not happen in life, often or ever. That, to both of us, I think was, oh my God, this is an opportunity. It was also a risk for a husband and wife to do a company together. And I think maybe Nancy can confirm or deny this. Also, the kids going to college and we becoming empty nesters made this a new joint effort to embark on. That's actually a critical piece of data or information that you have to factor in if you're thinking about starting your startup, especially, yeah, generally starting a startup and especially with your partner, your life partner as well. Uh, you're going to have to make sure that your priorities are straight. Startup is not for everyone at any time. Startups can be for more people, but they have to understand the sacrifices and understand what it will mean. Mm. So how do you guys make money? What's your revenue model? We actually have equipment that has to sit in the back end of the bank. Mm -hmm. We have an integration process that engineers will do to integrate our technology into the banking system. For that, we charge an upfront fee that includes a three-year license and free upgrades and assisting with certification and assistance with this allowing the approvals of Visa, MasterCard, Discover, and Amex. We're the only uh, in the game that have support of all four major networks. We also can support local brands like Misa in Egypt or Giro in Germany or Elo in Brazil. And that's a capability that's unique to us. And then we charge a revenue sharing model. It depends on the country. It depends on the bank. It depends on the volume. It can be a license fee. It also can be a part of the transaction. And we design it per use case. We're not rigid about it. We try to be part of the ecosystem. We try to to make sure we are a component of the bank's offer, not something that they need to worry about. We think our model, when we run it, it's an 80% saving. So 80% uh, is an 80%. By the way, and that saving doesn't include the emotional saving that you do. You don't have to store equipment. You don't have to ship mm. it. You don't have to mm. fix it if it breaks. It's a download. You can end it remotely like an Uber application. So your, your merchant, it becomes like an Uber driver. They can download an app. And if you decide to terminate it, you can terminate it from the server. There's nothing to return. Kill switch remotely. You don't have to go pull it back. Yeah, exactly. You got it. So your primary clients today are banks. Acquiring banks. Acquiring and there's banks. a distinction. Okay. There's a, not everybody knows what you probably guys know, but there's an issuing bank and acquiring bank. I think Egypt has a, a five major acquiring banks. The CIB is definitely one of them. So what are the use cases in the future? I mean, if banking is your market today, where do you see yourselves uh, going two, three, four years from now? The initial passion that I promised Nancy I would deliver on 
and Nancy should speak to it. She wanted to do this to protect medical devices, not medical records, not privacy, which you mentioned. That's not our okay. issue. Privacy is not our game. But Nancy can tell you a little bit more. The original idea Nancy had was for medical devices, was not for payments. Yeah, uh, I was uh, doing a consultancy for a major healthcare provider here in the U.S., and they were trying to solve a problem of, you know, given the baby boomers and gave, given, you know, aging populations generally, where the concept of telehealth and uh, remote health or whatever uh, has to be there, and there will be medical devices uh, that is remote, not within the, the confines of the network security of the enterprise or of uh, the hospital. Uh, so how do you make that work? And, and I was looking at their solution and what they're saying and meeting with, uh, I don't know, 20, 30 strong teams. And all they were trying to do is applying the same legacy concepts and security to those devices, thinking that it would work. So the stars aligned when I was uh, looking at this and I recognized that as a reference architecture, this is just not going to work. And I was trying to solve that. That is exactly the core of the problem that Sam at that time was trying to solve for the financial industry. Mm. And that's when, you know, it kind of came together, you know, absolute marvelous chance. Uh, it kind of came together. So the technology was designed with security uh, as being the objective independently of the industry. To add to Nancy's point, when we started, we took this to the medical industry and uh, everybody's focused on privacy. And we even sponsored a medical conference, which mm -hmm. means we held them. I mean, we paid for it. So we kept saying, if I have 15%, now probably 25, of medical mm -hmm. devices becoming intelligent, which means they connect to the internet, which means they're attackable. They're vulnerable. They're vulnerable. So we kept saying, here's what we do to secure them because they don't have a chip. We can prevent the chip. We can make sure that it's like your phone. Mm -hmm. Only AT&T can talk to it. Only your hospital can talk to it. Oh, so it's the privacy of my digital record. No, no, no. I don't care if somebody knows what my blood pressure kill is. Me I care if they can kill me remotely, which they can. And nobody, nobody understood what we're talking about. And when we started asking the right questions, it turns out that security experts in that <laughs> conference are all doctors. And they took it as an attack on their knowledge. And all of a sudden, we became, Nancy especially, became persona non grata. <laughs> <laughs> um, can I add something to, what, so, to, to the question? So you said, what other industries? So if fintech just happened to be the one with the biggest appetite for security technologies, money motivates people more than anything. Yeah. Sam explained the healthcare passion that we have or security for healthcare. There's also autonomous vehicles, mm -hmm. autonomous cars. Absolutely. So autonomous cars, driverless cars. So there's a whole big angle that is yet to be tackled or is being played with at this point. Uh, you know, it's like if you go into an autonomous car, how do you guarantee that the network within the car is secure enough such that it is not attacked and takes the car, mm -hmm. uh, you know, at speeds that it's not supposed to? How do you make sure that the map that was downloaded for the path mm -hmm. of, to your destination is authentic. How do you know that it's not going to take you to a different destination? Uh, how does the car know that when you go in having your phone with you, how do you know 
that you as a passenger knowingly or unknowingly have a hostile device that will try to take over the network within the car. So all of these things require the, you know, the agility of a security solution, which we believe and hope that MagicCube provides because it has the flexibility of the software and it can change and upgrade and measure and has some intelligence uh, in it. So to take it back to the original core design, which is security is supposed to be simple and it's supposed to protect data at rest and data in transit. And it is not supposed to know too much about the industry that it is securing. And that's how we designed MagicCube. That's an excellent uh, articulation. So to, to add to Nancy's, because we did a, a project with Honda uh, similar to this, it's really interesting. Inside a car, there are multiple systems. They call them ECUs. Just like hospital devices, a lot of ECUs in current cars, not even the future ones, mm-hmm. are now smart. And the solution that the industry has is to put a hardware security chip in each of those elements. They could be six or 60 That's Mm -hmm. a very, very expensive endeavor, and you cannot change it after you ship the car because it's hardware. So if you decide to remove all these extra chips, which are expensive, they come from companies like NXP, Intel, Qualcomm. If you remove those and replace them with our virtual container, all of a sudden, it's a very different there's no manufacturing. It's just a piece of software that sits inside the software you already have. And you, if you're managing a driverless car fleet, you can update it over the air. You can change it. You can change its function, upgrade, keep it. What does our marketing guys say now? Always up to date. It can be always up to date. Security was always up to date. That's a big deal. So connected cars is on, on the horizon as well. The issue with these industries that we have ambitions uh, with is that their time spans are higher. So connect cars... It's an eight-year cycle. Medical devices, probably three to five-year cycle. So it depends. It's coming into our purview, but it takes a little bit more time. That's fascinating, guys. We wanted to ask you guys about fundraising. How did you wind up meeting CIB? How did you pitch CIB? Why is CIB interested in Magic Cube? So from a long time ago, I'm a fan. And I say that not as pitching uh, something or the other. Many of my dear friends when I was much younger were part of Chase when Chase dropped their operation in Egypt and a brilliant team of bankers, all Egyptian, transformed it into the CIB, which became an entity. So I knew Halafay, I knew Sharif Abdullah, I knew Adil Laban. These are some of the names that are contemporaries of mine, friends of mine. One of them is a a relative of mine. And I saw them build this Egyptian entity. That's not easy. I mean, you look at Oroscom, you look at CIB. These are not easy things to create. So I've always been a fan. Putting this aside, Nancy and I always wanted to do something in Egypt because that's where we came from. And in our last trip to Egypt, to Cairo, on holiday in December, I decided to use one of the most beautiful features of the Egyptian people, which is, it doesn't matter how long you and I haven't spoken. It doesn't matter when was the last time I picked up the phone and called you. If I pick up the phone and call somebody I talked to 30 years ago, it's an immediate zekeshem. <laughs> Amelie, there's yeah. no, this doesn't happen anywhere else. So selfishly, I picked up the phone, called a few friends. I'm in Cairo for a prolonged period of time. And it's my country, Nancy's country. We want to do business there. I'm wondering if we can speak to one, two, three, four. And I give them the name of the four big acquiring banks. 
And to my sheer surprise, Muhammad Sultan, others, all of a sudden I had meetings. And some people advised me, oh, come on, it's Egypt, it's around Christmas, nobody's going to do business. No, 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 I'm going to attempt to do it. And honestly, the, the meeting that we did with C Ventures, we were talking to a bunch of professionals, they know what they're doing, they understand mm-hmm. investment across borders, which is not an easy thing outside of Silicon Valley. Even people in Florida don't get that well, as Silicon Valley does. And we were really impressed with uh, Shadi Tedros, Amr Shawi, and Ahmed. It was too good to be true. And then it turns out it's true. They, they understood what we presented. They appreciated the opportunity. They did their due diligence quickly. And they got involved and they remain involved and helping. So this was, to me, one of the most pleasant experiences in fundraising that I've had. All right. So we have to ask, what is your favorite Steve Jobs story? I can share my favorite. Please. Okay. It was one day just going to work uh, uh, normally. And our team is was in the same uh, building as the executive office. And everybody's going to the elevators, all is well. And then I was among a group. And then... As the elevator doors opened and I was about to go in, suddenly everybody left. And I just walked in, found myself, you know, just by myself with Steve Jobs. So it looked like, it looked like, you know, people were more aware of their surroundings, you know, and when they realized that, that uh, Steve Jobs was walking into the same elevator, they just left. So I was there, you know, with him and he's on the fourth floor. I'm on the third. So... Uh, the elevator is going up and he goes, uh, what's your name? You know, my name. And uh, which team do you work with? And I go, I work in Final Cut Pro. Uh, that's a great uh, Mac application. What do you do? And I tell him I'm leading this, that, and the other thing, and so on. And say, how are things going in there? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and that's when I knew, like, oh, that's why people left. Okay. Uh, and luckily... Uh, we just came back from a huge show in Las Vegas called NAB, National Association, National Association of Broadcasters. for Broadcasters. Yeah. yeah, right. And we were showing. And when we show, of course, we don't say that we are the engineers there. We're just staff. So I told him, you know, we just came back from NAB. We showed, you know, a certain version of the app uh, that wasn't yet out uh, uh, available to the customers. And he said, and how did that go? And I told him, the good news is that all the stuff people started asking about us are actually in the update that we're currently working on. And he goes, I like that. Good. And the elevator door opened and I felt it was a new day for me at Apple. <laughs> That's a fantastic story. And Nancy has a couple more, but I have one on Steve Jobs that I wasn't part of, Nancy was. And I'm gonna tell it on her behalf, on behalf of our daughter, Sarah, who also works for Magic Cube today. So, no way. Yeah, so although she's a biology grad from University of Chicago, but go figure. So, and it's tied to this, I tear up when I hear that story because Steve Jobs gets a lot of press or writing that he was not a good person. Honestly, I think he was just too smart for the people around him. And when anybody around him was too slow, uh, he just couldn't, he didn't have the time for it. And that's when people perceived him as rude. I don't think he was. No, he wasn't. He had zero tolerance for bullshit. (laughs) So Nancy took Sarah to the Apple store, the only Apple store in town, to buy her her first Mac. And as luck has it, 
just coming with Sarah out of the uh, out of the store. And just to put a visual, Sarah was a tiny little seven year old with ponytails, thick glasses. Six. Six years old, sorry. <laughs> and she's coming out. And Steve Jobs is coming in the opposite direction. He stops. He looks at Nancy. And he probably doesn't even say hi to her. He looks at the daughter and he goes on one knee on the floor and has a 10-minute conversation with Sarah. And what I remember from Sarah's description and Nancy, which, which could be a bit inaccurate because of memory, but he said something like, what's your name, Sarah? What, do you know your mom works here? I do. Do you know what she does? Yes. And he says something along the lines, can you promise me when, you, when you're older that you would help your mom make better computers? Wow. I tear up remembering this story because this is an amazing story. During Nancy's tenure at Apple, I attempted to work at Apple. I wanted to work for Steve Jobs, and my goal was different than anybody else in the Valley. I wanted to be fired by Steve Jobs because I'm sure I would have learned something. <laughs> but I, I, I wasn't able to. Nancy got me a couple of interviews. I didn't, I didn't make it. So forward to Sarah applying for University of Chicago in college, and we're looking at her essay to, to help her review it. And I said, Sarah, where's your Steve Jobs story? <laughs> Do you think people would be interested? Said, of course. You met Steve Jobs. I didn't. And Sarah adds the story. I don't know how much it helped. I think it did. But that's my, that's my Steve Jobs story. On behalf of Sarah and Nancy. That is a phenomenal story. Guys, I literally can't thank you enough for having joined us today. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Ours. Absolutely ours. If you enjoyed this week's episode, hit the subscribe button on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows. Making It is produced by Enterprise, your morning briefing on business, finance, and economics. Subscribe today for free at enterprise.press. This season is brought to you by CIB and USAID.